Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Pathways to Planetary Sovereignty. We've opened with Air Raid from Gratian Moncour's 1964 album, Evolution. Let me cut to the chase. In their book, Climate Leviathan, importantly subtitled A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future, Jeff Mann and Joe Wainwright posit that it's very likely that we face a future organized by a planetary sovereign which asserts the right to decide what parties and what peoples will have to sacrifice, or perhaps be sacrificed, in the face of looming ecological catastrophe and extinction events. That is, with the continuation of human life on Earth as justification, there will likely be a global regime formed of capitalist bonds between the U.S. and China. What is to be done to subvert this already forming regime in the name of climate justice? Mann and Wainwright accept first that the planet is headed for a likely worst-case scenario as plans for mitigation continue as rhetoric and fail to materialize. But that's not what they've come to tell us. They write in their introduction, quote, It is difficult to contemplate the future calmly. Merely to confront our perils can paralyze us with fear. As Mike Davis says, On the basis of the evidence before us, taking a realist view of the human prospect, like seeing Medusa's head, would simply turn us into stone. We have done our best to suppress that dread, and wrote Climate Leviathan to think through the political-economic futures that climate change seems to us most likely to induce. The mandate for that undertaking, for all its limitations and guesswork, stems from the looming political-economic formations that are no small part of our peril. Above all, we must not be afraid to ask hard questions. What they seek to do is think about the likely politics of the human future and to imagine ways to subvert what is the likely political and economic order so that the arc of this probably ending history bends toward justice. And imagination is key. But first, how did we get here politically and economically? Why is this the order to which it's claimed there is no alternative? Joel Wainwright joined me via Skype from his office at Ohio State University, where he's a professor in the Department of Geography. Along with co-authoring Climate Leviathan, he's the author of Geopiracy, Oaxaca, Militant Empiricism and Geographical Thought, and Decolonizing Development, Colonial Power and the Maya. We begin with the IPCC's 1.5 degree report and the need to decarbonize the global economy, which means global capitalism. And now... Pathways to Planetary Sovereignty with Joel Wainwright on Interchange on WFHB. In fact, there, there is a way to make things very simple about the challenge of climate change, uh, but it's, it's a kind of... Uh, Simplicity that turns out to raise complicated questions, but it's always a good place to begin. And that takes us back a year ago. Uh, we're, we're speaking now on October 24th, 2019. Almost exactly a year ago, the IPCC published a special text. So this is outside of its typical assessment report process that was uh, specifically to examine the likely impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and then to model the greenhouse gas emission pathways that would be necessary to avoid uh, going past that 
critical target, which was set in the Paris Agreement. And so this report, which is now typically called the 1.5 degree report, uh, is full of disturbing reading because it notes that we've already caused a one degree Celsius increase in the mean global temperature above pre-industrial levels. And that uh, it goes on to say that we're probably going to be committed to 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, global mean warming uh, sometime between 2030 and 2052. So that's very soon. That's within uh, 10 years potentially. And all of this, needless to say, would increase the risks to human health, livelihoods, food security, uh, water supply, uh, social security, and so on, not to mention the consequences for other species. So um, to avoid overshooting that target of 1.5 degrees, the IPC says, based on their models, that the total amount of carbon emissions that the world uh, can emit has to decline by about 45% based on where we were at in 2010 by 2030. And we have to reach net zero by 2050. And uh, there's a graph accompanying this on their report, which I encourage your listeners to check out because what it essentially shows is a long steady rise of carbon emissions and then it reaches the present day and then it turns around and goes more or less straight down. In other words, simply put, we have to stop emitting carbon or to use the language that Jeff and I prefer and use in the book, we have to very quickly decarbonize the global economy. Okay, so that's the preface. Now here's the punchline, which is we all know what that means. It means that we have to stop moving the carbon, which is in the crust of the earth, into the atmosphere. And what that means is that we have to stop taking the fossil fuels that are in the crust of the earth in the form of coal and oil and natural gas. And we have to stop burning them, which converts them into CO2, in which then causes the climate change to occur. The difficult issues, therefore, do not concern what we have to do. It's really that simple. We have to, we have to decarbonize the global economy. That's what the science shows. The challenge is doing that. And this is where a lot of the uh, false solutions that you mentioned come in. There has been a tendency in the literature on climate change, but also more generally in the political sphere and in social thinking about these matters, to act as if decarbonizing the global economy probably doesn't require big changes. Maybe we just add some solar panels or add a market that doesn't presently exist for some such things or regulate markets a little differently. Uh, on our analysis, what Jeff and I would claim is that decarbonizing global capitalism is a really big deal, and it's not going to be easy. It would require really significant changes in how we live, but more importantly, in the present arrangement of political and economic power. And so that raises two really big questions, two questions that led us to write this book. One essentially is, how could we actually bring about the political and economic changes in the arrangement of power that would allow us to decarbonize the global economy quickly? In other words, how could we fulfill this goal as laid out by the scientists in the IPCC report? And in the second place, uh, a more frightening question, if you, if, you, if you want to put it that way, is uh, concerns the future. If we fail and we don't rearrange the global and political and economic uh, arrangements quickly enough, and so we can't do what the IPCC has told us we must do, then what's going to happen? Not just in terms of the scientific description of the ways that the environment will change, which we can model to some degree of confidence, but in the much more unpredictable realm of political and economic life. Mm -hmm. like, what new patterns will emerge? How will humans respond uh, once, for instance, rapid climate change becomes uh, undeniable and fast? This is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Joel Wainwright, a professor of geography at Ohio State University and co-author of Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future, is our guest. 
The issues raised by climate change are no different than those raised for hundreds of years. Equality, freedom, democracy, and dignity. But the challenge is time. We now have an ecological deadline, or else. Okay, so with that, now I'm going to turn to page XI of the preface, and I'll read a couple sentences and then pick up on the middle of the second paragraph uh, where we write, A stable concept of the political can only hold in a relatively stable world environment. When the world is in upheaval, so too are the definition and content of the realm of human life we call political. Political theory thus has a place in natural history and finds its meaning through critical reflection upon it. Whether we know it or not, all our thinking is environmental even when it rebels against nature. Unfortunately, the prospect of rapid environmental change has generally produced an insufficient theoretical response among mainstream progressive thinkers. Most of it is pious utopianism, like those books that say, here's 10 simple ways to save the planet and tell you to do things that are basically good, like turning off the lights when you're not using them, but which really don't add up to the sort of changes that are necessary. Or they appeal to market solutions like cap and trade, which is one of the means, the other is a Pigovian tax that aims to put a price on carbon and thereby in the economic lingo to internalize the costs of pollution, which are presently externalized. Or they fall into nihilism, which means basically just saying we're fucked. But all these are false solutions, ultimately. Uh, and then I say, lament, and then we go on to say, lamentably, the left has really done much better, too often treating the climate as peripheral to struggles for democracy or liberty or equality and justice when it's precisely those ideals that make the climate struggle so fundamental. Mm. By that we mean, Doug, something like the following. Uh, although climate change is really complicated politically, there's a way in which once you understand it, you can come to appreciate that it raises issues that are really no different than have been raised for hundreds of years, essentially in the whole history of what we call modernity. And we're still fighting about equality, freedom, democracy, and dignity, ultimately. That's what this is all about. Uh, in a sense, the, the the challenge of climate change, therefore, raises no new issues. It The real difference concerns time or temporality. It makes all those issues pressing in a way that is mind-boggling for ordinary people, and really for everyone. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing really special about political philosophy. I mean, we're all political philosophers in a way. We all think about how things should be organized and how people should live. So, I mean, that's political philosophy. So, it, it's mind-boggling because... As we say in the book, it's now like we have an ecological deadline. It's like humanity has posed for itself this problem for thousands of years. How could we live together in dignity, respect, and freedom? And then suddenly we find out we've got to solve that puzzle in the span of one generation or else it all becomes almost insuperable. Right. right. And that, that's, that's a really uh, difficult problem. And so our, our, our claim about this in terms of political philosophy is that the ecological dynamic or the climate change dynamic makes the problem of the future, like how things will be, a much bigger problem for us than it was in the past. In the past, it was almost like the future, if you could put it this way, was like on the side of progressive thinkers. Mm -hmm. Because progressive thinkers could always say, you know, I may not get there, but this struggle is worthy because someday our children or grandchildren will live better. I mean, if you think about, for instance, I'm where you and I are here in the United States. So when I say those words, it's hard not to think of the great struggle for civil rights or going back a little further, the struggle against slavery. And there were there were plenty of activists in those struggles, which are obviously connected, who who could say to the people around them, yes, we're up against some really great challenges, but we we can we can find confidence and courage in the fact that we're also struggling to make a better future. And 
that dynamic is so important for maintaining solidarity and giving people meaning when they're making sacrifices. With climate change, it's not only difficult to say that, it's almost the opposite. Almost, not, not exactly the opposite, because people who are terrified about where the world is going aren't saying to their children, well, I may not get there, but things are going to be better for you. Mm. They're saying, it's because I think things are going to be a whole lot worse for my grandkids that I need to act and solve this problem right now. Mm -hmm. But that can be, for many people, uh, such a terrifying proposition that it freezes them up. So, uh, (laughs) so, so in, in some, in, in a way, what we have to do is very simple. But as soon as we begin to unravel what that means, we are faced by these very serious complications. And, and our hope in writing the book was not to solve them. We have, we're not that arrogant. We don't think we've solved for X. Rather, we only hope to have developed enough of a, of a framework for understanding our situation that would allow our readers to develop their own creative thinking. It's time for a break. This is Metaphor by Youssef Latif from the 1957 album Jazz Moods. More on planetary sovereignty and the capitalist Leviathan when Interchange returns with author Joel Wainwright on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. We're speaking with Joel Wainwright about the genesis for his book, Climate Leviathan. In this segment, we start with the metaphysical. Can we answer the end of times with reason and politics? Well, you, uh, you, you certainly start out with the framework or trying to cast us back into this idea that these these problems have existed and how certain parties have responded to them again in philosoph- in philosophical thinking and political science right. these are these are problems that have been there from the beginning or actually are problems that when answered have created the space we're in in the first place um, right. so you begin with Hobbes um, and this makes sense in terms of your book as well climate Leviathan begs right. 
begs us to talk about Hobbes and and, yeah. and Hobbes's concept of Leviathan. Um, so you you pretty much start there with Hobbes as uh, you know the the guy who who said life was uh, human life was solitary, poor, nasty, British, and short. Right. Um, but you start with your quote. Uh, you quote the at the beginning there with uh, Hobbes saying, "Authority or power, not truth, makes law." Right. And you spend time in this chapter trying to, I guess, uh, unpack that pithy little phrase. So, right. uh, so why why Leviathan? Why start there? So that uh, I think the best way into that is to um, to be honest with you about about something that makes climate politics really interesting is that it uh, leads many people to thinking thoughts that are essentially metaphysical. Hmm. Um, many people, I think probably most people in the world, uh, outside of a few societies that are, are not home to uh, uh, religion as we understand it, um, are turning to religion to make sense of a future with rapid climate change. And that's entirely understandable. Uh, it's not necessarily um, what we might want in the face of the challenge we have, but it makes sense because for for most people around the world, religion forms an essential part of their conception of the world. Indeed, it could be said for many people to be their conception of the world. It explains why we're here, what gives meaning to things. In other words, what is true. Uh, when things happen a certain way, they say it's because of God or gods. And um, needless to say, it's been this way for, for quite a long time, notwithstanding the secular movement since the uh, modernity or the enlightenment. So for a long time, people on the left, including political philosophers, have confronted this matter of religion by saying essentially that um, the challenge was to produce more reasonable, rational, and clear explanations of why things are the way they are, and to to lead the masses towards po political movements or political futures that are more free and equal. And so I think you know Jeff and I are obviously part of that tradition. But then when you come to climate change, it's unavoidable that everywhere you look, you see these you could call them non secular or metaphysical. Uh, positions that emerge within the discourses that people use to make sense of where we are and where things are going. And so I think from early on, Jeff and I felt that we were compelled to try and address that somehow in some creative fashion. So with that in mind, then I should share with you that when when our conversation that led to this book began, Jeff had just given a, a talk where he stood up in public in Vancouver and spoken about the challenges that world leaders faced going into the Copenhagen meeting in 2009. Uh, just a very brief clarification for your listeners. Uh, the annual meeting of the UNFCCC, that's the UN body concerned with uh, the climate negotiations, uh, sometimes called the COP, because it's the gathering of the parties that initially agreed to the Kyoto Protocol, uh, has been going on for over 20 years. And uh, as you may recall, in the early 2000s, the United States was not participating in those meetings and had not indeed participated in or fulfilled its mandates for the Kyoto Protocol. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. It never agreed to any mandate for the Kyoto. <laughs> it didn't have Kyoto to fulfill them because it didn't agree yeah, to any. Exactly. But, but uh, George W. Bush, the second George Bush president, pulled, that, pulled us out essentially entirely from the agreement. So at the end of eight years of the second Bush presidency, uh, I think it's a fair generalization to say most so-called progressives or people on the left in the United States and indeed around the world were looking to Obama to come to the table at the first meeting of the COP after his election and make a deep commitment on the part of the United States, which was, of course, the number one historical emitter of carbon, to say essentially the United States is back and we're going to lead on this issue now. So when in the fall of 2009, I think it was in mid-November 2009, 
uh, the meeting in Copenhagen took place, which Obama did in fact attend on the last day, there was a huge round of climate activism. Like I don't think I've seen, uh, I had ever seen prior to that. And I've been doing climate activism since the early 1990s. This is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Joel Wainwright, a professor of geography at Ohio State University and co-author of Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future, is our guest. The issues raised by climate change are no different than those raised for hundreds of years. Equality, freedom, democracy, and dignity. But the challenge is time. We now have an ecological deadline, or else. And so both Jeff and I got swept up in that and participated in different events in our respective hometowns. And for, for the most part, what we were trying to do was, quote unquote, send the message to Washington that we need a, a, a real ambitious agreement. The United States delegation needs to go to Copenhagen and lead the world with a promise to make steep cuts on carbon emissions, which didn't happen, of course. Well, Jeff stood up in Vancouver and said more or less the following. He said, uh, when, we, when we think about the, the people gathering in Copenhagen, and in particular, the world's leaders, which is to say the leaders of the world's most powerful capitalist nation states. And we think about the logic that compels them to behave as they do and the, the range of capabilities and, and opportunities that they have before them. We have to be really honest about what's likely to come out of this meeting or this process. And the truth is that if we're not careful, what we're demanding will end up being turned into something that isn't at all what we want. And he concluded by saying, we're either going to get a climate Leviathan or we're going to get a climate Lenin. So we spoke shortly after that on the phone, and uh, I had had the experience of giving a, a talk in public here in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, uh, on the steps of the state capitol building, in which I had said something quite similar, but I didn't have that elegant metaphor. Jeff has a real gift for that sort of poetical thinking. And we, we were stuck on that metaphor, and we were trying to figure out, I think, together why he said, we're either going to have a climate Leviathan or we're going to have a climate Lenin. And what it meant, I mean, obviously there was this alliteration, but beyond that, there was something about it that really captured us. And it forced us to think about what a Leviathan is, why that word means so much for the Western political philosophical tradition that we've inherited, which of course takes you back to Hobbes. But prior to Hobbes, it goes all the way back to the book of Job and the Bible, Mm -hmm. where where the book of Job is itself uh, taking up a myth, an Ugaritic myth, which is even older than the Old Testament. And so essentially we did things like read some of these old um, theological interpretations of Job and places where they um, touch touch into the, the, the political philosophical tradition, including, of course, Hobbes, but also importantly in a book by Carl Schmitt that you mentioned about the metaphor of Leviathan and Hobbes. And after reading all that, I, it was one of those experiences where uh, after reflecting on things for a while, we began to feel like we understood why we were so compelled by the initial impulse of that metaphor. But upon realizing that, we concluded that it wasn't quite right to pair Leviathan with Lenin, although Lenin's, I suppose, part of the story, uh, but that there was more going on than those two possibilities. Uh, in other words, we, we needed a better framework or better conceptual map of the different possibilities of a world of climate politics. And so then that, that led us into the exercise of trying to sort out in a way that was relatively coherent and clear but also sufficiently complicated enough to show the range of possibilities uh, to, to sketch out in a word a framework for potential climate futures and how they relate to political and economic changes. And that led us to the four square that is in presented in the second chapter of the book, 
in the initial version of the initial presentation of these ideas, an essay called Climate Leviathan that was published in the Geography Journal Antipode, that foursquare, that Punnett square is uh, at the center of the paper. And unfortunately, I would say uh, it it was the, the, the hook or the, the element of the paper that most readers found exciting, but also in a way got stuck on. Hmm. And so there were a lot of other things going on in the paper that that, that got missed in a way or or, sh- or just were cast in the shadow of that idea. And I, I have to also say that I think that um, our our conception of what the Punnett Square was supposed to say was perhaps misunderstood by many readers because of the brevity of the piece. Hmm. And so that was another reason why I think we felt the arguments deserved a fuller analysis in, in, in the book. And so we started to write the book. It's time for another break. This is Frankenstein from Archie Shep off of The Way Ahead from 1968. When we return, the ungraspable phantom of life. How we confront not just the uncertainty of life's meaning, but the uncertainty of life even continuing. Welcome back to Interchange. Our show is Pathways to Planetary Sovereignty with Climate Leviathan author Joel Wainwright, professor of geography at Ohio State University. We begin with Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, a sketch of solutions to political turmoil and how to form a modern order that works. background of um, Job is, of course, an interesting one and, uh, mm-hmm. because you, you started with the metaphysical um, and imagining the problem of life itself and how life is uh, you know, something we, we contend with. What's it for? Why are we here? This kind of thing. And maybe this That's is right. uh, part of the existential problem that we're facing. It's interesting. You mentioned Melville in the book uh, briefly, of course, because of right. the Moby Dick being Leviathan in the book, but also Melville... Right in that first chapter actually ends with the ungraspable phantom of life. Um, Oh, that's right. Yeah. Which you actually echo in at some point calling uh, what Hobbes was worrying about was an ungraspable conjuncture. That's a great, that's a great, 
Well, I hadn't thought about that at all, but that's a really – thank you for that. That's a good point. Well, sure. Well, I'm a big fan of Moby Dick. It's probably a drinking game you could play if you listen to this show. <laughs> <laughs> I think you probably beat me both at the drinking and the game. <laughs> so, uh, But anyway, the interesting thing about the book too, and, and I, d- I do want you to spend a little more time – um, sure. on some of these mechanics of political thinking too, in some sense, right? Because one of the things, again, I think I, I stressed earlier was how, how to think about things like sovereignty, how to think about yeah. things like state of emergency or state of exception, how to think about the way these people have been thinking and their influence on how we are arranged politically currently. Um, mm. So, you know, for me, uh, Hobbes and the sovereign is, as you say, sort of based on a social contract thinking, uh, whereas Job, I think you say, is more of a, a mere terror. <laughs> right. The, the sovereign has mere terrorists in some sense, right? right? Um, but maybe uh, quickly, if you can, I know it's a, a giant book, Leviathan, but but what is Hobbes trying to say with the, his, his position on the sovereign? Very good. So um, briefly, uh, Hobbes is writing at a time when his world is in great turmoil. And the book Leviathan is essentially a sketch of a possible set of solutions to the problems of his time. Uh, The problem of political turmoil, specifically, more generally, the problem of how to form a modern order that works. And his solution, uh, which is the Leviathan for whom the book is named, is to imagine a sovereign which commands and unites the people uh, who are his subjects. And in a famous image, it would be as if the king or the sovereign of a given territory in his body, I think his metaphor, his, his language always uses um, the male form, so I'll say his, um, brings them together in the body of the sovereign, thus uniting them, but also giving them form. Well, this is not a, a, a friendly liberal democratic sovereign that he's imagining. On the contrary, it's a a theory of the modern state in which the sovereign has ultimately the power to decide who lives and who dies. And well, as we all know that, uh, that theory of the sovereign was in a way contested by the events that we usually associate with the birth of modern democracy, particularly in the 1700s here in the United States, we tend to think of, uh, the war for independence and the confrontation with the King of England. Um, I think a more decisive historical event comes with the French Revolution shortly thereafter, where we can see the conjugation of capital and nation and state through the demands of the French for uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And what comes out of that specific conjugation in France, but more generally in the political movement that it represents throughout the world, is a kind of demand by the people to be the sovereign, to be sovereign. Uh, in the United States, probably the specific text that captures this idea most clearly is the final stanza of the Gettysburg Address, where Lincoln says that uh, we're in this battle ultimately to create a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. It's a poetical way of capturing the idea that ultimately the sovereign, that's the government, sovereign should be of the people, by the people, and for the people. So what we have then is a shift from the time of Hobbes to the time of Lincoln, In both cases, there is a sovereign. In both cases, the sovereign unites the people. It's of the people. But by the time of Lincoln, the idea is that somehow, whether it's through representative government or some mechanism, that sovereign should itself be the people. So that idea, we might say, has a lot going for it. I don't want to make it seem like this is a bad idea, right? Mm -hmm. But um, I think that many people 
across the political spectrum have questioned in various ways whether uh, that idea is realizable. In other words, whether we've really made good on it. This is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Joel Wainwright, a professor of geography at Ohio State University and co-author of Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future, is our guest. The issues raised by climate change are no different than those raised for hundreds of years. Equality, freedom, democracy, and dignity. But the challenge is time. We now have an ecological deadline, or else. A great deal of the criticism that is directed at Trump these days, in my opinion, could amount to be saying that, you know, he's not fulfilling the mandate as described by Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. In other words, he's not really ruling for the people. He's ruling for himself. He's acting in a way that is uh, uh, egotistical or tyrannical, etc. And I think that kind of criticism has a lot going for it. But note that it's still rooted in a conception of sovereignty, where sovereignty is of the people, by the people, for the people, which is, again, not that far from Hobbes because sovereignty is the people, but it's now supposed to be uh, directed by them through some mechanism, which, as we know here in the United States, is organized per the Constitution. Okay, so I told you all that to say the following. What Jeff and I are claiming in the book about sovereignty and the reason we have to go back to Hobbes is, first of all, that there's a way in which climate change puts us back in the position of Hobbes prior to the formation of the modern state. Because for all that we on the left like to criticize Hobbes for his uh, unnecessarily pessimistic and uh, indeed violent conception of human nature and rule, one thing that, that we can say about his position at the time he's writing Leviathan is that he had the insight, perhaps even the genius, to speculate about what would need to happen in order to make the society that he was in coherent. So let me, let me, let me say that a little bit differently because the choice of words was perhaps unclear. He, 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 devised, he devises in the book a strategy for making coherent solutions to the puzzle of his society, which then appear to us retrospectively to be clear and, in fact, to have come to be realized. And in that sense, we can say that he, he tackles the problem of thinking about the future politically in a way that is at once speculative, literally, that's what term he uses, but also uh, reasonable for lack of a better word, which is, which is notable because typically we don't think of speculation as an act of um, ordina- or, or, or orderly reasoning. Uh, speculation is usually regarded as deficient in some sense. Oh, that's mere speculation, we say. <laughs> so right. what, what Jeff and I are saying here is that there's a way in which we have to go back to a Hobbes-like position and speculate about the future. Because in fact, that's what we're all doing. Like at the beginning of our conversation today, Doug, when we we're talking about, you know, world order and where's it all going? I mean, everybody is in a way speculating about where things are going. So we had better do it well. So that's that's one thing uh, that comes from Hobbes. The other thing that the other reason that Hobbes is important here is because we would claim that uh, the, the way sovereignty exists today seems to be uh, changing, or at least it could change. It could be on the way to changing would be a, perhaps a more precise way of putting it, in the direction whereby the sovereign is no longer defined by a people, as it was both for Schmidt and Lincoln before him and Hobbes before Lincoln, but rather by life as such, or human life perhaps, so that we can imagine the sovereign in in our world coming to be he or she, but unfortunately more than likely it will be a he or a group of he's who will act as if uh, their sovereignty is rooted in their capacity to protect life as such, and thereby to make decisions about what lives and what dies. Right. 
And in that, in such a scenario, which we characterize as planetary sovereignty, sovereignty would shift so that it's, it's to use the highfalutin term, it's ontological determinant would no longer be the people and the sovereign's relationship to the people, but would be life as such, human life in particular, but perhaps life in general. And it, if such a thing were to come to pass, then that would mark a decisive shift in the long uh, relationships between humans that are called the political or the sovereign. And so uh, to appreciate that, one has to have a sense of who's, who Hobbes was and what he was writing about. So since one of the directions that could go in, in our term, in our world, uh, excuse me, in our framework, one of the directions that is to say planetary sovereignty could go is towards a capitalist form of planetary sovereignty that we call Leviathan, uh, we decided to, uh, to to keep that term Leviathan and to use it in homage to Hobbes. But but if you've followed this narration, you'll remember that it isn't really a choice that we made because it was the metaphor that was there at the beginning that caught us. Mm-hmm. And then it took us like two years to figure out why we were saying what we were saying. It's time for our final break. This is Albert Eiler with New Generation, off the 1968 album New Grass. More with Joel Wainwright, co-author of Climate Leviathan, when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. My guest is Joel Wainwright, co-author of Climate Leviathan, a political theory of our planetary future, published by Verso. We begin with the sovereign as decider, and the way that becomes the morality of the body politic. from uh, Hobbes to Schmidt is a fascinating one as well and and strikes me as um, you know the world we've been living in primarily not so much of and by and for the people but one more 
um, dedicated to a sovereign that acts like that that primary ruler um, That's right. more than uh, I, I I think I've ever thought of democracy per se. Uh, and I right. think generally, uh, Trump has made this clear to me more more in its its sort of lunacy or its like yeah. over uh, weaning aspects of you know a, a large toddler who wants what he wants. Uh, right. This seems to be not far off from the definition. <laughs> Of, of you know the sovereign in, in terms of being you know uh, the the George Bush saying he's the decider. Uh, That's right. And it struck me that this was literally a philosophical, a, a political, uh, philosophical point George Bush was making. That's uh, right. Learned, I'm sure, at at his handlers, you know, to right. to hear these terms used is not to sure. say I'm a hilarious man who's going to make a joke and call somebody Turb Blossom and then say I'm the decider. Um, <laughs> he's going to say. You know, politically, you have a you have a good a, a, a good memory for some of the choicest <laughs> moments in the in George W's um, yeah the the most tenure. horrible ones. But the the you know the idea that he's the decider is a political uh, theory, right? Is to right. say uh, that the sovereign decides, and what is right. decided then is what is political and what is moral, even. Uh, right. And that strikes me as really fascinatingly coming to the fore here with Trump as well is that we're sort yeah. of coming up against morality in these choices, you know, mm -hmm. so we can all sit back and say, well, that doesn't seem right. Or why would he do that? Or you see all these memes about Trump and evangelicals and, you know, all these things where you say there's there's no morality in these choices. How do people who claim to be moral or have these ethical principles, you know, stand behind the decider that is Trump? Well, that's right. because Trump is the decider and he is the morality. Yeah, well, you you may be right. I I have to tell you the truth. I I avoid I avoid memes, and I'm I'm <laughs> I, I stay off I stay off social media as much as possible. But let me let me say this uh, about Trump. I think that uh, in, in in broad outlines, I I hear what you're saying, and I agree with you. But I think it's important for those of us who who live and and think in the United States uh, that notwithstanding the legitimacy of our specific criticisms of Trump. It's important for us to always recognize that the global political crisis we see today, which which is characterized in the first instance by the emergence and taking power of a group of men who are uh, extremely right wing mm -hmm. and who uh, generally have come to power by manipulating the fear of the immigrant, fear of the Muslim, hatred of uh, gay people and so on. In other words, various variety. And, and then I haven't mentioned violence against women. Mm -hmm. In other words, a variety of forms of exclusion and violence towards uh, groups of subaltern people of various types, whether defined by religion or gender or race or what have you. Uh, this group of men, which could include Trump and Modi and Erdogan, Abe, Bolsonaro, um, Al-Sisi, right on down the line, mm -hmm. uh, and certainly uh, Johnson today in England, uh, apart from being, I mean, let's be candid, all of these figures, if we go back in time just 15 years, would have been seen as ridiculous uh, figures who would have been impossible to conceive as the sovereigns of their societies. And now they all rule. And in fact, um, if we think about the world system in the realist IR terms uh, as, a, as a hierarchy of power players, it's notable that many, if not most of the most powerful capitalist nation states in the world today are run by such figures. And so obviously this refl reflects a historical shift of quite significant proportions. And then if you run the tape back and you say, well, where does this begin? Um, it doesn't begin in the United States. Uh, Trump is is a, a kind of a latecomer to the group. Mm -hmm. So so then this raises an interesting question. We can 
we can criticize Trump as a particular person. We should. And we can question his morality or amorality. I think I, I think the most the most concise way to put it is not that it, he, he makes some occasional bad decisions or he is uh, blind to certain facts. It's simply that he's a kind of amoral, egotistical person whose pursuit of power is so clearly tied up with his own um, um, personal uh, desire for power and, and control. But putting that aside, it, we, it's important not, you know, what I'm trying to say is it's important not to over-personalize things oh, sure. and to think of Trump only as like a, a fool or a, a crazy individual that we just have to replace and then everything goes back to normal. Right. Because the fact of the matter is that the, the world's political system is in a, in a very serious crisis. And Trump may be better thought of as a, uh, uh, an effect of that crisis than its cause. This is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Joel Wainwright, a professor of geography at Ohio State University and co-author of Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future, is our guest. The issues raised by climate change are no different than those raised for hundreds of years. Equality, freedom, democracy, and dignity. But the challenge is time. We now have an ecological deadline, or else. Bring it back to climate change allows me to try to say something that I think we tried to say in the book, and I'm not sure it came through clearly enough. I've heard from some readers that suggest maybe we just didn't find a way to put it as clearly as we should have. But uh, Jeff and I wrote the book during this global shift towards the extreme right, at least at the level of the uh, executive or the sovereign, but not, uh, but not until the book came out after Trump was elected, but it was essentially finished before he was elected. And we we tried to say in the book that this 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 movement, this shift to the right can be partly understood as a consequence of a global crisis of the political, which is rooted in the ecological crisis of which climate change is arguably the most important part, but it's not the only part, which to put it really crudely goes like this, that people everywhere are seeing that environmental problems are getting worse. People everywhere are feeling the consequences of climate change, whether it comes in the form of you know, water scarcity or higher food prices, warmer days, etc. People feel it. And when, when, they, when they feel and see those environmental changes, they get afraid and they get concerned for their well-being and the well-being of their loved ones. And when they feel that fear, they don't necessarily turn to liberal modernity and its scientific explanations of what's going on and how we should solve the problem to make sense of things. Uh, they may turn in any number of directions. And one place that many people whose interest we might not think is not well served in doing so are clearly turning is to the extreme right wing, which resolves the fears and anxieties experienced by ordinary people by turning them into fear of the other. And this is really entirely predictable. But um, it's obviously uh, making things worse mm -hmm. because what another thing that all these figures have in common is that they are either climate denialists or they're so close to it that effectively it amounts to the same thing. In fact, recently, of course, the clearest illustration of this is with Bolsonaro. Uh, Bolsonaro takes power in Brazil in a consequence of what, what essentially was a coup. And immediately after taking power, he gives the green light to his base, which is to basically cease all protection for fires in the Amazon. And this year, 2019, we've seen an, a record number of fires in the Amazon and a massive amount of clearing, which is essentially going to base, uh, um, excuse me, benefit a relatively small number of people who are expanding in the cattle sector. But it plays well to Bolsonaro's base 
And so uh, this is the consequence. Well, now with the burning of the Amazon, if it keeps up for a couple of years, it's, going, it, it's a massive, massive problem for those of us who are trying to, you know, address the, the uh, problem of climate change because of the release of carbon it represents. And on and on it goes. So the, the, the point is that um, we have a very serious global political crisis, which is partly caused by the ecological problem, but then the ecological problems are in fact clearly made worse by that crisis as well. Right. Um, I, I, Lastly, one, one thing, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the following, which is that uh, in the, I mentioned the Paris meetings earlier. Mm -hmm. I was in Paris at the time of the meetings. I didn't have the badge needed to get into the uh, official uh, uh, delegates building, but I did go to a number of events surrounding it. And uh, I, I want to mention that your your listeners may not know this, but during the entire period that the Paris meetings were occurring, uh, the city was the city indeed of France was under what they call état d'urgence or uh, uh, state of emergency, in which civil liberties were suspended, and so it was very difficult to organize protests uh, because the the usual rights of uh, citizens in French democracy, which again is the cradle from the time of the French Revolution of that idea of popular sovereignty, were literally quite literally suspended, and then. Come down to the present day. Here we are at the end of October 2019, a few years later, and we're getting ready for the next COP meeting, which is going to be in Chile, a very important one because it's intended to stock take on progress since Paris and hopefully try to, you know, get countries to make more ambitious commitments, etc. Well, Chile just announced a state of emergency. The government has banned protests, and many are asking about the timing again. So it's 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 quite. I would put it like this. I would say it's the materialization of the link that we were just discussing between the global political crisis, the state of exception that becomes increasingly the norm, and the ecological politics of our time. This is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Joel Wainwright, a professor of geography at Ohio State University and co-author of Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future, is our guest. The issues raised by climate change are no different than those raised for hundreds of years. Equality, freedom, democracy, and dignity. But the challenge is time. We now have an ecological deadline, or else. Well, the state of exception is, is an important one, obviously, and the way in which you imagine or write about these particular possible scenarios, and, and again, you, you mentioned your, your four-square uh, box earlier, uh, having uh, these possible scenarios in, in broad frameworks, one uh, being a capitalist uh, force, I suppose, or, or a capitalist economy that organizes, and then the anti-capitalist as well, uh, one that has planetary sovereignty and one that has uh, anti-planetary sovereignty, uh, which you, I think, use the term behemoth uh, right. for that. So, uh, But two of the things that seem, obviously, that seem likely or seem more likely, I suppose, the climate leviathan and uh, climate Mao is how you term it in the book. You mentioned climate Lenin earlier that Jeff said. Um, these are um, These are sort of organizational ideas that already exist and seem plausible right. if we like they right. seem like things to imagine you you're mentioning the important part or maybe one of the most important parts of the book or the ways that the book wants people to think about this is that you must imagine something else uh, right. and a part of the book or the the book's goal i think as much as anything else is to is to force that upon us you know to oh. imagine something else and that's well yeah uh, well said the so i wanted to before i have to lose you here today and 
and and then maybe take this up again later in the year um, sure. is to is to sort of talk about just those two primary ideas, not going into depth, obviously, but sure. um, the, you know Paris Agreement. You you talk about the 2015 Paris Agreement. You talk about being uh, seen as a failure in many ways in terms of dealing with climate uh, right. mitigation strategies. Again, we can use these. We we've not really used these terms yet. Mitigation, adaptation, suffering is another one you talk about. Um, right. But Paris Agreement as being the way in which you can start to conceive the political idea of the planetary sovereignty uh, emerging through these these transnational organizations that already exist and are already in place and already beginning to sort of write the rule of law that will become planetary sovereignty, that even right. as they fail to address mitigation tactics or strategies, they're, they're succeeding in sort of creating the ways in which the world will be organized as we fail into this very difficult, different possibly horrific future for the most of the population. One of the core themes of the book is that failures can be productive or effective. I mean, there are many times in human history where the social forces that were in play were brought into a kind of crisis where clearly things had to change in one way or another. And yet there were conflicts within the society that prevented the change from moving in a certain direction that might have been seen as logical or correct. But that doesn't mean that nothing happens. It means that perhaps the, the, the outcomes are not necessarily the ones that were intended or expected or indeed better. And I, our, our, our claim is that we're living through such a time where many of us are perhaps inchoately responding to very complex political, economic, and ecological or environmental uh, changes in ways that lack a roadmap. And so it becomes very hard to know what we're cheering for, so to speak. And we might end up advocating for something that we don't really want. Now, now with respect to the Paris Agreement, simply put, uh, the major flaw of the agreement, which to its credit, the agreement itself avows, so the people who were in the room at the time, I think were fully aware of this, is that despite the fact that the Paris Agreement is a commitment on the part of the world's states to reduce carbon emissions, based on their nationally determined intended uh, emissions pathways, uh, which are supposed to basically go down over time, despite the fact that it establishes a framework for those countries to work out their carbon emission pathways, uh, there's no enforcement of um, the actual emissions. So in other words, the, there's, the, the, language is not, the language in the agreement is not binding with respect to the decarbonization of the global economy which, as we noted earlier, is the one thing that we all know we have to do. And in fact, if you, if you add up all of the carbon emissions that are intended per the nationally determined intended contributions to carbon pollution, uh, the amount that will be emitted if all of those states that are in the agreement do as they say is more than enough to take us well beyond two degrees Celsius warming. So on its own terms, the Paris Agreement fails. So I don't and many people have made that argument. We certainly aren't saying anything new and pointing this out. In fact, we try and be very, how could I put it, like generous towards the authors of the agreement and saying that I think, you know, they're pretty honest about this in, in their presentation of these facts. Um, so where does that leave us? That doesn't mean, however, that Paris is meaningless. It's still essentially the only international agreement that matters with respect to global climate change. It's still the de facto political framework within which these issues are being negotiated globally. It's not going away, even though the U.S. has ostensibly pulled out. In fact, interestingly, even though the U.S. pulled out after Trump came into office, he continued to send a delegation to its annual meetings. And in fact, that delegation, 
uh, has been saying and doing much the same things they were doing before. Uh, n- not exactly, of course, there's a shift, but uh, it's it's not as though um, U.S. foreign policy did a 180-degree U-turn on this issue. Uh, and that, that's to say Obama wasn't as good as people maybe thought he was on these issues. Hmm. So where does that leave us? And perhaps we can conclude on a utopian note because a lot of this has been uh, a bit doom and gloomy and there's plenty of that in the in the climate change literature. Uh, Jeff and I end the book in the last chapter by sketching our idea of what we call climate X, which would be a future, a path that is potentially realizable, although obviously a really long shot in which we could respond to these challenges in a way that is just and prioritizes uh, the dignity and livability of uh, people's lives everywhere. And But our claim is, which may be wrong and is very difficult to sketch out concretely, but nonetheless it is our claim, is that only in a world that had overcome the compulsion of capitalism for the endless expansion of accumulation and only in a world that had somehow also overcome the present form of sovereignty while also avoiding the pitfalls of planetary sovereignty. Only in such a world would it be possible to have a genuinely just and democratic response to the challenge of climate change. Um, To say that is obviously a tall order, but there's a lot that we can work from because there are in fact people and communities all around the world who are responding to the challenge of climate change in creative ways that breathe life into this general feeling that many people have that Climate change presents us with a problem that forces us all to become uh, much more radical in our thinking. So that's where we derive our hope from. And I hope that your listeners are are enthusiastic about continuing to think hard and acting in the direction of such a future. That's our show. We'll close with another from Albert Eiler. This is Desert Blood, off of The Last Album, from 1969. Eiler died in 1970 at the age of 34. Thanks to Joel Wainwright for an introduction to his great book, Climate Leviathan, written with Jeff Mann. I don't think I've read a more instructive and clear book about the way politics works and the way it's theorized. Essential reading for all of us in these darkening times. We must think hard about our possible futures. We must imagine better. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Executive producer is Jar Turner. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Oh, this land is a desert, desert, desert. And we dwell in this land. In this land, in this land. We separate, we join, and we separate. In this land we are one great big band.